You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest once again today is Sam Tannenhaus, distinguished editor of the Sunday New York Times book review and historian biographer of American conservatism, particularly much so in the persons of Whitaker Chambers and William F. Buckley. Now, last time, Mr. Tannenhaus and I discussed Will the Tea Get Cold?, That's the title the New York Review of Books had just given to a collective review he had written for it of several recent volumes about today's arch-conservative Tea Party. Now my guest has followed up in the New York Review with comments about Jeffrey Cavaservice's rule and ruin, the downfall of moderation and the destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. And, of course, everyone's talking or writing about Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann's new book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, which these generally moderate commentators summed up in the Washington Post the other week in a piece titled, Let's Just Say It, The Republicans Are the Problem. Also, Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman writes in the New York Times about plutocracy, paralysis, perplexity, to which he might have added partisanship, as he concludes that America's real structural problem is in our political system, which has been warped and paralyzed by the power of a small, wealthy minority. So that one just might apocalyptically conclude The end is here. Indeed, I wonder if my guest Sam Tannenhaus thinks that about our political system. Well, I don't know if for a touching apocalypse stick, as uh, one of my former teachers, Harold Bloom, might say. But no, these these are very, very difficult times. I think it's, these are all very smart people uh, you're invoking, including my colleague Paul Krugman, who's a brilliant economist. But I do think there's a tendency sometimes to overstate the, the dangers, the perils of, of politics at a given moment. Really, can look at many times in recent history where things seemed pretty much as bad as they do now. The, the problem, of course, is that the economy is in such uh, sluggish conditions, not you know, desperate as it was before. And um, it looks as if, if the system were not so deadlocked, we could do a lot more about it. And I sympathize with all these critics who point to that. I think they're right. Well, I'm glad to hear my friend Sam Tannenhaus is sort of saying, take it easy, take it easy. Well, here's the thing that concerns me a little bit, Dick, about some of the discussions of politics. And look, some would implicate me. I'm writing about the conservative movement as well. Is I think when you're in a big, complex, diverse democracy like ours, it's a mistake to try to either impute motives to voters or assume they're not voting for the people they mean to vote for or that they don't understand what's really going on or that they're being hoodwinked and deceived. I think there's a little bit of that in some of the the conversation. I think you get in a difficult position when you talk about a uh, democratic uh, nation 
like ours in that way, because then you're really asking a different set of questions uh, that have really go to the basis of democracy itself and how it works. And I think if we dial back a little bit, as they say, and you know, take a more measured view, it might not look so desperate. For instance, whatever his weaknesses, and I think we, we've seen many of them exhibited, Mitt Romney, by far the most moderate figure in the Republican field, easily got the nomination. I mean, you have to ask why that is. If it's a time just extremists and of intense partisans and ideologues, why on earth does someone who, if you just look at his record, forget about the rhetoric of the campaign, which always tends to be exaggerated, if you look at his record, his four years in Massachusetts, this could be the most uh, moderate Republican nominated in, in 40 years or more. Are you prophesying? <laughs> no. Shall I mark that down to your saying, wait until he's president and you'll see that he's a moderate? I don't know. That's the big question with him, of course. And it's, it's an interesting debate. You know, one side of the argument says he will inescapably be captive to the hard ideologues in his party. And I agree, by the way, with uh, the commentators you mentioned before who say uh, we've, we've reached a point where um, one of the parties, the Republican Party in particular, uh, the House of Representatives, does really seem to be dominated by a core of, of people whose beliefs are kind of outside the mainstream. Um, and we know because of the way our system was created with its checks and balances and all the breaks you can put on legislation and the rest that they can really slow things down. So is Mitt Romney going to be captured for them? Yeah, it's possibly would be. Well, you, you raise, you make me think of an important question to put to you, this question of structure. Uh, you've looked at, you're an historian, uh, you're the biographer of men who were very important in terms of understanding, analyzing, and understanding our political structure. Do you think it holds up? now, today, as you look around the world and as you look at us, uh, government that can be, can be deadlocked as severely as ours has been? Yeah, that's a really, really big question. Um, I don't know that if I'm smart enough to answer it. Here's the thing. Come I mean, somebody, on, some, somebody comes along with an inventive piece of legislation and is able to sell it in the way that a Lyndon Johnson could, and early on Barack Obama could. You know, we forget those, uh, you know, comparisons in his first months to Franklin Roosevelt when Obama took office, and it does seem that, yeah, then, then it seems to work. Um, I think what the big change, and I've written about this, others have too, is the use of the filibuster. Um, the filibuster has served many nefarious purposes over the years. I mean, the most notorious being its use by conservative Southern Democrats to just to stop any kind of humane civil rights legislation, even to eliminate lynching, you know, to pass anti-lynching legislation in Roosevelt's day. There's no question. But a, ch a change happened with uh, Bill Clinton, I've written about this, where the filibuster was ac actually became just a standard form of uh, legislative um, gridlock, you know, and it happened under someone people kind of respected, Bob Dole, when, 
when he was a Senate minority leader under Bill Clinton, and Clinton had a fairly small stimulus in mind, 1993, and Dole used the filibuster to stop it. And that wasn't something that had happened before, where you just stopped a president from enacting his normal legislative agenda by gathering up these numbers. And that happened again. It almost happened uh, to Obama in the very first months of admin his administration. He was only able to get the legislation through because he had so-called supermajorities in both houses, which he now no longer has. I mean, the curiosity, for instance, of the Supreme Court uh, debate, you know, they're hearing, they're hearing the case on uh, the Affordable Health Care Plan, is it? it was, it's, it's a law that was passed by a majority of, right, of legislators. It's, it's not as if this was some radical measure that was forced down the throats of, of Congress, uh, on the contrary. And yet it has been politicized in an extreme way through a kind of rhetoric and partisanship that does feel new in our politics. But then that comes back to the main question that I really do want to put to you and make you answer. Mm -hmm. And that is, have the events of the last two decades, you go back to <clears throat> Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, but we've seen this continuing. We've seen, seen this developing. We've seen what you shrug your shoulders at or look askance at and say, how could this be? Bills passed by a majority, et cetera, et cetera. We are where we are now. It doesn't seem to be much of a chance that we're going to move back, does there? Even if the parties change parties in the little dance they do. Move back to what, Dick? Move back to um, a more civilized right. kind of governmental... Um, Structure, no. We've always had the structure, but a governmental process. Well, what we've lost, and you know this very well, and we've talked about it, is the idea of political consensus. Yeah. And consensus is a term that's sometimes misunderstood. It doesn't mean everybody agrees about everything. It does mean they agree about what the big questions are. And I think this is one of the surprises, or one of the really dismaying changes in our politics, that uh, very good... Uh, uh, political thinker uh, Michael Lynn pointed out, I think as long ago as 1994 or 1995, that um, many on the right, including intellectuals, uh, seemed to think that there were no serious problems at all that should be addressed by government. And yet, if you go back a generation earlier, a period I write about in the second uh, New York Review yeah. book piece you mentioned, if you look at the period when Daniel Patrick Moynihan, lifelong Democrat, worked in the cabinet of Richard Nixon, was you know, recruited by Nixon to be his urban czar to solve the problems of, of poverty. And they came up with a hugely ambitious program that was defeated. Now, I have to be very clear about this. Both Democrats and Republicans, for different reasons, rejected the program. But what's interesting is when Moynihan wrote about it uh, in several pieces that ran on The New Yorker and then were really serialized from a book, Politics of Guaranteed Income, Moynihan made it clear that when he presented his program, the Family Assistance Plan, which was essentially a guaranteed income to the poor, everyone would be given money to do with. It was based on the economics of quite conservative thinker Milton Friedman that uh, this would be a way to rescue the nation or the poor, the underclass, as some called it, 
from dependency. That was Moynihan's big word, which then filtered into the culture. Well, when he first presented the plan to powerful legislators in Congress, people like Wilbur Mills, remember him, before his scandals, it was actually quite a brilliant and respected legislator, and, you know, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. The question was, well, we know poverty is a problem, but is your solution going to work? And now you think the answer would, would be Mitt Romney's, well, what, what poverty? You see, that, that's what's a little dismaying now. And that's what Peace is partly about, is the period that Jeff Caviservice writes about with such depth and detail in this book, uh, Rural and Ruin, is, uh, you know, it's really a kind of lament, although very closely researched, for this period of moderate Republicans who acknowledged the same problems, which are social problems, in the country at large. So they didn't say, well, Democrats are unpatriotic because they say America may not be the greatest country that ever existed. Instead, they said, well, Democrats have one solution to the problem of urban poverty. Here's ours that we think is better. The consensus came when everybody agreed that was a real problem. Now we've gotten to the point, I think this is one of the surprises in the primaries, where even those basic questions were kind of taken off the table and substituted with others. You know, Rick Santorum's campaign about, you know, separation of church and state and the evils of liberal college professors, all these cultural issues that don't address in any way the concrete problems much of the country is facing and concerned about. And that, oddly enough, although reassuringly, polls seem to indicate they really do want solved. That somehow all that got removed. And it, it's, it, we've had a, a primary season so far just strikingly devoid of real policy discussion. Um, because it, there seems to be a premise just going into this election that even the idea that you think government might be able to solve a problem, already brands you as, as, a, as a socialist or a leftist of some kind. So it has poisoned the conversation, no question about it. Well, that's, that's what uh, your more recent review is about, uh, about the downfall of moderation. Do you yeah. think he was right in picking the Republican Party as... Yes. Well, I think there's pretty good evidence. Uh, a colleague of mine at the Times, uh, Thomas Edsel, has written about this, that yes, you can say, and, and this is what Norm Ornstein's getting at, too. As important, Remember, Norm Ornstein is at the American Enterprise Institute, um, you know, one of the most respected and most conservative think tanks in Washington. And what does he say? He says, well, if you look closely at the two parties, the Democrats are really not so different from what they've been for quite some time now in the kinds of programs and policies they favor. It's the Republicans who've moved in a more extreme direction. Why? Because the Republican Party is dominated by a movement. This is what my last book, The Death of Conservatism, was about. It was about how ideological conservatism, movement conservatism, became the engine of the Republican Party. And Cabot Service writes about it in much greater depth and detail, that um, it, there was a kind of fratricidal war fought within the Republican Party. And the moderates and the liberals, and I think there's a, a regional and sectional component to this, 
the Northeasterners, the Rust Belt legislators were either marginalized or actually purged, we might say, from the Republican Party. So what you have is a party that's much narrower in its ideological interests and thrust. And that doesn't work so well in a two-party system. There's an irony to this, by the way, because back in the day, uh, political scientists, I mean back in the 1950s, the height of consensus, political scientists like James McGregor Burns actually wanted the parties to be more ideological because he, he interpreted it in the opposite way from what ended up being our political reality, which is to say he predicted that we would have parties that were more ideological, but he didn't realize it would be the extremists who would take over. He thought no. the extremists would be purged. That's why he would come to this table and argue for that development. And I would say, look out for what you're wishing for. And I don't know what Jim feels about that at this very moment. But he's amazingly still with us. Right? Oh, I know that. He's and, and very vital and active. He wrote an important book recently about the uh, Supreme Court. I it's don't like true. the way you say in his 90s. Come on. <laughs> no, I say that with admiration and aspirations of my own. Well, here's another thing too, Dick. If you remember one of the famous essays uh, Professor Burns wrote, it was in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, 1956, I think, when he uh, introduced this argument. I think the it's called Whose Party Is It? I think was the title of, of the article. He began with an anecdote he'd been told about his biographical subject, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That in 1944, Roosevelt had uh, said in a conversation with uh, Judge Samuel Rosenman, one of his intimates, he said, you know, I'm, Wilkie and I, Wendell Wilkie and I are you know, talking about this, that maybe what we need is two parties, a liberal party and a conservative party, right? And the liberal party would be composed of really the northern and western um, states and some of those around the Great Lakes. And the conservative party would be those southern Democrats who were getting in FDR's way and the isolationists in the plain states in the Midwest. And he saw very accurately how the country was moving. But what, what the great Roosevelt himself missed, and I think Professor Burns following him, is, is a, apparent in the idea that somehow Wendell Wilkie would be the leader of a conservative party because to the true die-hard Republicans, Wilkie himself was ideologically suspect. You know, a former Democrat, he came from Wall Street, he had no strong party allegiances at all. So what that shows is these very powerful political minds like President Roosevelt and Professor Burns, even at the period of consensus when they wanted to break consensus down, still were thinking in the terms that governed that same consensus. Is it unfair of me to ask you what your feeling is about that? about Jim's and the president's desire to see this dichotomization? Well, I think they were prophetic. You know, is it what not, happened? You mean, do I think they were right, right that wrong. it would be bad? I, I think maybe not. I've thought about this, Dick, and I wish I had a better answer for it. I'm not a political theorist uh, the way James uh, McGregor Burns is. But here's something that struck me during this primary. It's partly what this second of two essays was about is how much the country is still uh, separated out by sectionalism and, and regionalism. Um, there's a good bit in this second piece about the strength of the evangelicals during the primaries. And where are they strongest? They're strongest in the Bible Belt and the Deep South. 
So does that mean we really should have two parties that directly address those areas? Maybe, but there's a slight difference as well that um, I think complicates it, and that is that our society, culturally, we're more complicated and diverse than we were 60 or 70 years ago. So, for instance, in Roosevelt's day, you could look at the northern cities with their political machines and their ethnic immigrant populations and say, okay, that's one part of the country now. That's going to be very distinct from what you might find in the Southwest. Well, now you look at almost any big city in America and you find that, well, they're large Latino mm-hmm. uh, populations. They may be democratic. If you look at the great suburbs, which in uh, some ways are the deepest reservoirs of votes, they tend to be liberal on some issues, conservative in others. I think if we had parties that were that distinct, you'd have a huge, you'd have huge areas of the population that really wouldn't know where they belonged. That may be the case now already, you know, the, the independents and moderates who, who really don't know where to go. I think what we call independents now are really the moderate Republicans that uh, Jeff Cabot Service writes about. You do think so? Yeah, that's, that's what I think we're... There are two different kinds of independents that we should be clear about. There's one that in the old days they called switch voters, and those people who don't even... They change from election to election, they don't know what they think. These are the ones that, if a poll is given, uh, won't know what's... They won't be able to say what state uh, Mitt Romney was governor of, for instance. They're not really paying attention. Then you have the independent voters who are really in the middle somewhere looking at both parties or both candidates in a presidential election and saying, well, which one is more likely to solve the problems we have? Who seems to have better judgment? who seems to have you know, better executive material, who's more likely to break down uh, partisan barriers and divides, who speaks in a way that connects with me. These are very serious-minded uh, centrist voters. I think a lot of them were comfortable uh, voting for Republicans, probably through the administration of, of George Bush. That's when a lot of them broke away. Those were a lot of the voters that the Democrats attracted in 2006, Um, in the congressional elections that President Obama attracted again in 2008. Um, 2010, hard to say, very low voter turnout, but he probably lost some of them. There are the voters he's trying to bring back now. They are probably party-less, and that may be a new thing in our politics. I don't know how many there are, but the number, don't you think, seems pretty high. Where do you think your friend uh, Bill Buckley would be now? Uh, well, Bill Buckley's a very tricky case because uh, he's a brilliant, wonderful man, uh, a man of great intellect and extraordinarily civil and a really quick, flexible mind, no question about all of that. But he was also a true blue Republican. He was an ardent defender of Joseph McCarthy. Now, Bill was very young That's, when he did that, yes. but nonetheless it was true. Um, he and National Review, his magazine, I've just been looking at some of this material recently, were very staunchly segregationist in the 1950s. It was not just a matter of states' rights. That was the argument they made. They were segregationist. They supported that, you know, what was called massive resistance to the Supreme Court decision in Brown and to some of you know, the Little Rock incident where President Eisenhower sent troops, federal, right, federal guards and um, National Guard, they 
were, you know, ferociously criticized that. And, and in the pages of the magazine were arguments, oh, interviews with Senator Richard Russell from Georgia, who said that integrating schools is a step toward miscegenation. I mean, this was published in the magazine. Now, those were ideas, those were, or sentiments that were current at the time, but as many have said, they were not necessarily conservative arguments. They were reactionary arguments. They were arguments that came out of the very right wing of the Republican Party. And Bill sponsored some of that. At the same time that he wrote very sensitive and uh, penetrating editorials in defense of the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. So it gets very confusing when you look at Bill Buckley. But in the end, he was always a Republican and usually found a reason to support Republican candidates. So he probably would this time, too. We have a minute and a half left, something like that. What do you do when your subject obviously changes, as Bill Buckley did change, move, develop, grow? What do you do? Oh, well, that's, ex- that's exciting. Well, first of all, you don't pass judgment. At least I don't. This is a much bigger figure than me. Same with Whitaker Chambers. These are huge figures who are more interesting than I am. My job is just to try to get it right at each moment. That's what makes them interesting, Dick. It's what makes figures like that uh, attractive and fascinating is uh, the changes they undergo, the, um, all the information that they absorb and recalculate, the way they question themselves, formulate arguments at any given moment that will be the sharpest arguments made, and then five years later, they've turned around and changed their minds. It makes them interesting. Well, I know that that's what makes so interesting the great book on Whitaker Chambers. Will it on Bill Buckley? Well, I make no claims for, uh, for what I do in telling the story except to try to get it right. And uh, Bill Buckley led a very big and multifaceted life. It's not an easy story to tell, though it's fun to learn about it. That's the point at which I say thanks very much for joining me today, Sam Tannenhaus. Always a pleasure, Dick. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other open mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash open mind.